Welcome to In the Fig of It, Provin Losses Weekly Podcast with me, Colin Lambert, Manager of PL. Um, before we get to this week's guest, we'll do that was the week that was. Fairly quiet week, I guess, is inevitable coming off July 4th. Although markets managed to sort of seem a little bit busy in times, which is um, quite good to see. So the two news items I guess caught my eye this week. The first was um, Singapore's competition authority. I don't think they're throwing a spanner in the works of the LSE group refinitive deal, but they could certainly be delaying it. And what was interesting for me was how they cited amongst one other, one or two other concerns, but they cited amongst the main concern being the ownership of the uh, WMR 4PM fix, which is obviously used by a lot of asset managers, a lot of index providers. Um, and therefore they were concerned that LSE is a major index provider taking on um, Refinitiv as the provider of the FX benchmark um, would be a concern. Now, I've got to be honest, of all the challenges facing WM, and I've written about quite a lot of them and spoken about quite a lot of them over the last um, couple of years, um, I hadn't thought of this one. So it's a new one. It's a new one for the company to consider, I guess. In reality, I think you've got to look at it and say, well, you know, given how Refinitiv benchmarks you know, WM already uses EBS data, occasionally uses CurrentX data, it's used to working as an industry concern. The conversations I've had with people, you know, within the WM business, you know, the benchmarks business, would suggest to me that, they, I mean, they take their position very, very seriously. And I can't see how um, they would be against making sure the appropriate protections and you know, Chinese walls or whatever it may be were in place. I don't see it as being a problem that cannot be solved without, you know, the odd legal document, apart from the fact it will take the lawyers probably three years and millions of dollars to come up with the uh, the actual document concerned. So, yeah, it's probably a, you know something they could do without at this moment in time. But it strikes me it should be an issue that they can soothe the fears of the uh, the competition authority fairly quickly. The other issue, or no, the other uh, news item was um, CMEs um, extending their C-cross, their committed cross mechanism to FX link. Um, basically what C-cross does is it allows you to negotiate a trade beforehand. So, you know, if for instance, you know, top of book on CME is 2 million by 2 million, but you wanted to trade 50, you could potentially put a, you know, a, a request for a cross out there if you've negotiated it, for instance, through an interdealer broker. So, you know, I've, I've negotiated this trade with the interstate broker, but I want to get the benefits of the, you know, sort of clearing and futures. Um, let's execute on um, FX link. So effectively what it enables you to do is negotiate a much bigger ticket than is available. What I think is quite smart about this um, is how CME has given a five-second window. So effectively, market participants will have a five-second window during which time it, they will be shown that a committee cross is being negotiated, which means if they want to join top of book or even go inside, they can do, which should theoretically build liquidity. And this is not actually a new idea. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly when it was, but I think it was the early 2000s when I believe Reuters bought Icor and looked at doing a sort of, you know, matching for options. Now, it's one of those things where the system 
sort of limped along. Volumes never really took off. I think that's more to do with the fact that um, you know, options traders were not interested in electronic trading full stop. But um, if I remember rightly there, there was the opportunity there to build a book by putting a specific interest into the market. So you put the interest in and you invite other people to make markets around it. So you'd look at it and say, I think it's a very sensible move by CME because if you're really going to make a splash in the FX swaps market, the one thing you got to have is size. You know, generally speaking, the people on the desk and the customers that are hedging are not often dealing in small size. They want to get the deal done. They don't want, you know, sort of slippage or market information leaking out there. Most of them want to trade at mid and are happy to do so. You know, so if six is cable is, I don't know, 107, 106, you know, they don't want to trade at one or six and a half and both sides would be happy to do so. So by bringing that negotiation into the futures world, into the futures world, but still allowing people to negotiate at OTC, I see this as a very positive move for CME. You know, the story of FX Link, I always thought, as I wrote when it first launched, that it's going to take a few years for the potential to really be, I guess, realised of FX Link, and I think it, and I still stick to that. I still think it will, but I do think the regulatory shift is very, very slowly pushing us towards that sort of cleared, capital-efficient FX swaps market. And in that, if that being the case, then this could be a very timely and positive move for CME, um, which I guess we shall see. Um, that's pretty much it for the week that was. Um, I'll be back just after the break with this week's guest. Um, I guess as way of an intro as a tease such as it may be I mean, a lot of the chatter that i'm picking up on in the crypto space particularly reading about a lot um in fact julie ross our editor in chief published a talk series only this week on or sorry last week as you're listening to this on on the issue but there's a lot of push towards custody and pb in crypto so after the break i'm going to talk to someone who's looking to provide what is an important part of the puzzle but actually something that's very very often overlooked we'll be back in a second did you know that if you sign up before September 1st, you can subscribe to Profit and Loss for just £130 sterling for a whole 12 months? That's a huge 30% discount on your regular subscription rate. Or pay just £230 for two years. Go to www.profit-loss.com plans and sign up today. Or email info at profit-loss.com for more information to ensure that you never miss out on the latest FX news. A couple of regular themes on in the thick of it over the past couple of years have been data and the management of data. Generally speaking, though, we've, we've looked at it in terms of market data and delivering that to pricing engines and so on. Um, the other thing, I guess, is something that comes back to something my former co-host, Gaden Stops, once said was, you know, blockchain is a solution looking for a problem. The world has moved on and we're seeing a lot more applications of you know, distributed ledger technology in our markets most of it coming from obviously the crypto world. My eye was taken a couple of weeks ago by a paper put out by um, Lassero. And we've got Rashid Ali, who's co-founder of Lassero on the podcast. Rashid, welcome to the podcast. It's a, it's a new concept for me, but I guess what you're really doing is sort of solving an old problem. And we're talking here about the concept of the policy engine. So welcome to the podcast. What do you mean by the policy engine? 
Thanks very much for having me, Colin. I think the best way to explain a policy engine is that everyone knows that any organization has rules. It has rules about what people can and can't do, under which circumstances, and it needs to create some kind of process compliance with those rules. Our description of a policy engine is very simply a piece of technology that can very efficiently help you refer to a rule set and then very securely enforce that rule set. Right. So the technology we're using here is you, you are looking at the blockchain technology. So how are you actually sort of deploying the technology to support this concept? With our policy engine, what we're really trying to do is achieve two things. The first is that we're, what we're really building is a platform. We don't think that we're the people to set or define the rules. We want something that's really, really configurable because each business has its own very particular level of rules. And those can be very detailed, very specialized, very complex. They can relate to regulations or internal policy or really security policy. And so what we're really trying to do is build a very modular platform that's built for speed, that allows people to very quickly and very easily in a low code, no code environment, put rule sets in and then have the platform enforce those rules. Now, one of the problems with the way that it has been done in the past is that those rule sets are typically held centrally in code. They're administered by someone. And so they themselves are a cybersecurity risk or an attack surface. And one of the really, really interesting things that blockchain allows you to do is it allows you to store those rules in a very, very secure environment and make them tamper-proof. And that's absolutely critical because by being tamper-proof, they're effectively you know, shielded not only from external risks, from outside attacks and impersonations of administrators, but they're also really resilient to internal risks like fraud. Mm. That, I mean, that's quite a big issue, isn't it? The fact that you control the internal. A absolutely. By some estimates, 75% of the risk is internal. And if you look at many of the most recent cyber attacks, including Capital One, for example, those were foundationally internal issues, not external attacks. Mm. It's quite worrying, isn't it? So, I mean... I guess traditionally what we have, I mean, if you look, I mean, to look at uh, maybe a, a good use case here, I mean, historically, the a lot of critical decisions have had like what we call the four eyes rule, haven't they? So, yeah, effectively, this is strikes me. This solution can actually make that an eight eyes, ten eyes, whatever, how many eyes you want rule. Not just that, but it can add rules to the rules. And that's why it's so fit for the modern world, because everything that we do whether it's a wholesale bank's internal compliance process, or whether it's dealing with the customer in a digital wallet, everything we do in this world is becoming increasingly digitized, right? Yeah. Digitization is the meta trend of our, our era. And clearly what COVID has done is accelerated that with work from home and distributed remote teams um, becoming much more prevalent. And so the question then becomes, you know, how do you securely manage a process when there's no one looking over people's shoulders in the office, how do you take that four eyes rule, as you said, and you know, effectively turbocharge it? And what we see here is something that we call multi-dimensional verification. It's about verification against the rule sets, 
but using really multi-dimensional processes. And one example of that is consensus, right? What blockchain allows you to do is build in a very, very powerful methodology of getting consensus where no individual has the power to do something without the right consensus uh, and collaboration. And the more people that have to collaborate and add that consensus, the less risk there is of collusion. And so we think that some of the concepts that have grown up in the blockchain and digital asset world are really exciting concepts as blueprints to take over to fintech and enterprise data. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I must admit, reading through a paper that you kindly shared with me the other day, um, this is born out of the digital asset space. So I totally understand that. But um, there seem to be a lot of, as you say, enterprise level applications for something like this service the prison's custody or prime or, or prime services yeah we we see this as a very very broad-reaching um you know platform and concept mm. partly because as i've said all we're trying to do is provide an enforcement platform that you know use cases or specialized users can bring real knowledge subject matter expertise you can have professional services firms add rule sets for very particular regulations for particular assets in particular com countries. You can have organizations add their own rule sets about how they want to manage process compliance. But the digital asset space is, is very, very security conscious, as you know, and it's dealing with a fully front-to-back uh, digital process. So it's a really good test market in which to develop some of these ideas and blueprint them to then ripple out into uh, fintech and indeed enterprise in general. I'm interested in how the idea came to you because, I mean, I guess one of the themes of the past decade in financial markets has been how technology has outstripped our ability to actually monitor activity. And, you know, I'm, I think in terms of what happened with, you know, chat rooms, what happens with, you know, sort of, you know, latency arbitrage, et cetera. And is this, did the idea come out of the need to um, better or more efficiently regulate our use of technology? You know, I worked for a bank, um, Colin, that was very early in understanding how technology could completely transform and revolutionize um, front office trading, right? And we built probably the first and the best and the biggest single dealer electronic FX trading platform. And that really was absolutely part and parcel of one of the reasons why that bank became the dominant provider in the industry. Um, that bank was also very forward looking in the sense that it understood there's no point having all of that front end technology if you can't also have back end process and automation, which is to say around the settlement process. Yeah. But after the financial crisis in 2008, I think that concept went one stage further, which is if you look at banks today, a huge amount of the cumulative technology investment has been around trading. It's been around the transaction, which is to say initially trading and then settlement of those trades. In the back end with regulation, process, compliance, controls and security, I, I don't think there's been quite the same amount of automation, digitization, and, and bringing really smart technology to bear to reduce costs, increase security, and just really improve operational efficiency. 
And the deluge of regulation, the deluge of complexity that has, that has swamped banks since the financial crisis is increasingly unmanageable. It's still being done through manual process. And if banks are not able to automate that, and more importantly, to automate it in a way which is very, very robust from a security point of view, very auditable by both auditors and regulators, I think that it's just going to be unmanageable. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. And, you know, by some estimates, compliance costs at banks are going up by 15 to 25% a year. 40% yeah. of them report inefficient or outdated tech. So I think the time is right now for technology innovation to focus really on what I call the back end of process compliance and regulatory compliance. It, we use a general word to describe it, which is governance. And I think governance is a good word because it's a good umbrella to discuss a whole bunch of things, which include operational risk, process compliance, regulatory compliance, regulatory reporting, all those kind of things. Yeah. And it certainly seems, I mean, I, I would agree with you that generally speaking, those that want to have got their pricing and risk engines well sorted. Um, so the, the focus should go that way. I mean, does this sort of extend then to something that a lot of our listeners will be well aware of, the API environment? Absolutely. And um, you may be aware that there was a congressional hearing in the US recently in which um, the control and the policy that surrounds the use of API keys within banks was a clear cybersecurity risk at a national level in the US. And one of the things we think that the crypto world can really teach the fintech world is that the crypto world is extremely focused on key permissioning, right? Because the private keys for a Bitcoin are effectively ownership of an asset. And as a result, you need to keep those really, really, really secure. And you need to permission them in a really secure way. And I think that, that this technology, which is developed for that purpose, has tremendous applications in API key security and API key management for financial institutions. Was, I think it was something, I'm sure it was in your paper where I think it was stated that about 20% of Bitcoin has been lost due to yeah. people not actually having control of this. That's a staggering amount. It is. And... Um, you know, it would be wrong to say that that same level of risk applies in the financial services world yep. because transactions clearly are, are more reversible. But, you know, the fact that a transaction is reversible doesn't mean that you can be complacent around sending money to the wrong place um, and not having the right kind of process compliance and control. So, again, I think that the, 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 the fact that 20% of Bitcoin has been lost has been a very strong incentive to develop absolute best-of-breed technology in the digital asset markets. And what I genuinely believe is that the digital asset markets clearly have a lot to learn about institutionalizing and professionalizing from the financial services markets. We're seeing a lot of that with the emergence of prime brokerage models, clearing models, much more grown-up ways of thinking about infrastructure and arrangements in the digital asset markets. But it's not all a one-way street. I think there are certain things the digital asset market does that are incredibly instructive and will, you know, ripple out and migrate into financial services that will both increase security and improve process. Mm. And something you, you mentioned earlier on was, you know, talking in terms of like, you know, the security of data and stuff like that. I mean, because if there's one thing I think everyone can agree on, there's more data in the world 
than there's ever been. And that's certainly the case in financial institutions. So how does this sort of play out in helping these institutions manage what is, you know, I mean, we, we, I mean, we must be five or six years since we started using the word big data. I hate to think what the data is now. Gargantuan. Well, well there's a very, very, very good analogy, actually, to financial markets. I mean, if you think about the data world, the data world tends to work in what in finance we would call an omnibus account, a big database that has everyone's data sort of mushed up into this giant database. And what's really happening in the data world is what happened you know, some time ago in the financial services world, which is that we're taking these omnibus accounts and we're actually moving them into increasingly segregated individual accounts. So instead of having a database, you have something that looks more like a data object. And actually, that's a little bit what the digital asset worlds are driving into what we call digital currencies or digital assets. And all that really is, is saying that, you know, when you have money with a bank, you, you simply have a share of their general balance sheet and they have a ledger entry that says you own this bit of that. Well, what happens when your digital currency or central bank digital currency or digital token is actually yours. It's a segregated account with this, you know, it's a data object. At that point, the number of data objects that banks are going to have to manage will just explode. And the velocity of those data objects is going to explode. So you're going to need to have systems and processes that are much, much more oriented to granular data, or what's sometimes called atomic data parcels, that moves with incredible velocity. Uh, and I think that's the challenge for, for both the financial services industry and for the enterprise data market as a whole. Well, I mean, data, I mean, data security three, four years ago was barely thought of, was it? I guess there's been some high profile cases around the world around that. I mean, this, I guess, can help at least alleviate or, you know, or dilute the issue. Oh, uh, absolutely. It's not the full solution. Um, this is a really big problem. It's going to need a lot of real innovation in technology. But the simple fact is that cybersecurity spend globally has exploded. It's gone from yeah. about $3.5 billion in 2004 to over $120 billion in 2017. And by the time we get data around you know, uh, the current era, no doubt it will be much bigger than that. I mean, information security market is estimated to be a $170 billion market by 2022. So I think we know that this is a big problem. I think we know that with digitization, it's a problem that's only going to get larger. And I think we know that with regulation, GDPR uh, and financial services regulation, it's just becoming you know, a much more complex problem. And that's why we think that even if we can provide just one small sliver of a solution in that market will be adding value and helping to, you know, sort of manage that problem going forward. Mm. I, you mentioned there, obviously, the fact this is not a panacea. The solution is not a panacea for, <clears throat> for all that ails the, uh, the financial and data world. But, I mean, obviously, there are a huge variety of potential use cases there. So is this where the, app set, the concept of the app library comes in? Yeah, absolutely. So we've always said that, you know, the idea that we will build a product that will solve all these problems is, I think, completely unrealistic. It's too big a problem. All, all we're really hoping to do is build a platform, a policy engine, into which 
real experts who really understand policies and rule sets and governance in very hyper-specialized and detailed ways for very particular applications can build um, their own specialized uh, applications, artifacts, and other ways of creating, as you said, a sort of an app store where people can come in and there'll be a certain number of rule sets that come with the platform, uh, your starter pack for 10, if you like. Yeah. But there'll be a whole massive library of hyper-specialized applications. And we'd like to create a marketplace. I think it makes a huge amount of sense for someone to come in and say, do you know what? I'm going to spend a lot of time and effort creating a particular application and artifact for this aspect of MIFID, let's just say, yeah. right? And for them to put that in the, in the app store, and it is so much more efficient for everyone to then go and buy that standard market artifact, right? We've seen a similar sort of idea occur in a number of different areas. I mean, salesforce.com is probably the most famous you know, exponent of that model, but we think it makes sense for a couple of reasons. Firstly, we just think it's a very efficient way to run a market. There's no other way you can cover all of those use cases and that expertise that you require. But most importantly of all, it takes away this horrific inefficiency of every individual organization spending time and money building their own version of a rule set that actually, you know, you don't need a different rule set per bank. One rule no. set for MIFID will do, right? And yep. that can become a standard rule set and everyone can buy that off the shelf and save a lot of time, a lot of money. But most importantly, it'll, it'll create an agile environment in which those rules are always up to date, right? And you don't have to go yeah. back to the beginning and rewrite them every time there's a new regulation. So we think that kind of model in general can massively reduce aggregate spend. I mean, the annual spend on AML CTF by tier one banks alone is $8 billion. And I'm quite sure that a lot of that spend is, is you know, inefficient replication of the same thing in 40 different banks. There's no common standard or common place that you can go to do some of those things. So part of our motivation is to create efficiency in the market through this, you know, standard market platform where, you know, we don't need to replicate again and again and again. Yeah. Well, I think there's one thing we can probably, or everyone can agree on, is that big institutions replicate a heck of a lot of things. Um, one last thing then, Rashid. Um, is this a machine learning application or an application to manage and monitor machine learning? Well, that's a really interesting question, Colin. And actually, I think it could be both, right? Right. It could, it could put a rule set around machine learning, right? But equally, machine learning can be part of the rule set, right? There's no reason why part of the rule set couldn't be, hey, you know, is this normal or not normal? And if it's not normal, in what way is it not normal? And how do I want to sequence that rule set to create risk-based escalations, right? That's the holy grail. What you want to do is you want to avoid putting a lot of the sand in the wheel for small, low-risk transactions because it's just not manageable. It's not practical. But on the other hand, you don't want the big stuff, the risky stuff, the unusual stuff to go through by mistake. You want yeah. it to be scrutinized. And you can afford to have human eyes look at that and to scrutinize it and make a judgment call. So it's all about tying together rule sets, oracles, 
machine learning, but ultimately also human-based approval escalation so that people and organizations can be accountable at a supervisory level into the most efficient workflow, which we call secure flow, together, to all work together and to instrument that interaction in a way that makes it really seamless and efficient. And I guess it's important to remind everyone as well that this is all done on a blockchain. It is all done on a blockchain um, to some degree, right? What is on the blockchain is the piece we think needs to be on the blockchain, which is the rule set, which you must keep tamper-proof, right? And by the way, that rule set may not be the full rule set. It may be a rule set that governs all your other rule sets. But as long as that rule set is tamper-proof on a blockchain, immutable, um, unmanipulatable, unhackable, you've got a really, really good secure rule set. Because if, if your rule set is not secure, if it's not transparent and demonstrably auditable, if it's not tamper-proof, then that is going to become a huge source of vulnerability. That, in my view, is where you're going to see some very significant hacks in the future. Mm. You know, the easiest encryption is very strong. It's very hard to break encryption keys. Banks have phenomenal security around HSMs. I think where, you know, the, um, you know, I'm not a hacker, but if I were, I think where I would look to gain entry is around how some of those rule sets are held on centralized servers or in the cloud and how I could go in and manipulate the rule sets so that I don't have to steal the keys. You know, if I have the rule set, by definition, I have the keys. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, obviously, a lot of our listeners will know you from your time in the foreign exchange industry. We've just had a conversation there with two people, both spent a lot of time in FX, and one of them was in their comfort zone, and the other one is sitting here wide-eyed at the wonder of it all. <laughs> it's fascinating stuff, Rashid. Thank you very much for joining us. It does strike me that, you know, you're probably tapping into something that will become a bigger theme in months and years to come in terms of actually how do we manage all of this process. So thank you very much for joining us um, and for explaining it all. Thank you, Colin. It's a pleasure. And um, I'm, I'm delighted to be invited on your podcast. <laughs> and, you know, as you can tell, I think this is a very exciting space. I'm passionate about it. And, you know, with some luck, we'll be doing some very interesting things to help, you know, manage this deluge of risk and complexity that's coming. Yeah, indeed. We wish you luck. Thank you again. And to our listeners, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week as usual. Um, In the meantime, um, have a very good week.